Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FinTech Insider Live. Please put your hands together for your hosts, Sam Mall, Simon Taylor, and Sarah Kaczynski. Hi, everybody. Day three. Um, supposedly, it's uh, the afternoon. I haven't been outside in three days, so I'm going to just say that that's what's going on. My name again is Sam Mall, the Managing Director for North America for 11FS. I'm Sarah Kaczynski. I am turned off, apparently. There we go. Uh, the Principal <laughs> Research Analyst over at 11FS. And I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS. But enough about us. You're the crowd. Crowd, how are you doing? All right, so let's bring out the first round of guests for this evening. Uh, we have Courtney Kelso, SVP and General Manager for Commercial Card Products at Amex. We have Samant Nagpal, Global Head of Amazon Business Payment Products at Amazon, unsurprisingly. <laughs> and we have Mark Heimbach, Chief Operating Officer at WorldPay. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. I know, again, day three. <laughs> How are you guys? You well? You're feeling full of energy? Ready for FinTech Insider Live? Absolutely. Great. Let's do this. All right. So with that, let's dive right into our first story. Um, audience, feel free. If you've got questions, raise your hand. We will get you as part of this. This show is going out Monday. So if you want to hear your name on a podcast, I would highly recommend you raise your hand, unless you're Barb, because you've been on the show too many times. So our first story, Amex and Amazon, partnership for co-branded business cards, like the two big A's here. The Amazon Business and American Express will announce the launch of the Amazon Business American Express card. This is a tool designed to change the way businesses buy online. And I think Amazon's done a good job of that personally in collaboration with Amazon. American Express created a powerful buying solution that, one, empowers small business owners to make the best financing choices for their business, purchase by purchase. I sound like I'm doing a commercial. Provides greater transparency in each transaction, giving this businesses more visibility into and trackability of their business buying, and is backed by the convenience and selection business customers have come to know and love from Amazon with the world-class customer service, security, and buying power of American Express. Courtney, Samat, I'm going to let you give us a yeah, lot more information that on that. Yeah, explain that not like please. press release language, please, because yeah. that was killing me. Listening and to Sam do that, though, was amazing. I've never sound, heard Sam sound so corporate before. That was worth it. I drank a Red Bull right before I <laughs> So thank you. You're we, welcome. as you mentioned, we're really excited to introduce today the Amazon Business American Express card. And what we have learned by speaking with our small business owners is that on the top of their mind, the forefront of their mind, is managing cash flow. And so what we've been able to do with this product is we've created a powerful new buying tool. And so what we allow uh, our card members to do is on a transaction by transaction basis um, and at checkout, small businesses can choose whether or not they want 5% back on the purchases across Amazon, Amazon Business, Amazon Web Services, and Whole Foods Market or they can uh, take more time to pay. So they can defer that payment by 90 days. <coughs> Perhaps in this case, better timing their, uh, their expenditures with revenues that may come in from their clients. Well, that's the big thing for small businesses, isn't it? Like if you're dealing with larger businesses, cash flow is everything when you're a small business as a founder of a small business. Yes. Uh, it, that, that's your whole lifeblood. And to have such a major supplier of stuff, I mean, if our CEO David were here, he would confess his addiction to buying small tech <laughs> things. Like most of the stuff you see and most of the equipment we use all came from Amazon at some point. He has a bit of a problem but we like him anyway. So, like, are you guys seeing that? Because um, at Amazon, you have uh, a lot of small business users. You've been doing lending into the space for a while. You know, what gap is this closing for those small businesses other than cash flow? Or is it just that cash flow thing that's really key? So, when we think about serving small businesses or customers, different customers tend to have different needs. Some like invoicing products. Some like to use cards. What we wanted to do is make sure, like Courtney said, um, Un, you know, bridge this gap of cash flow, right? Um, there isn't, when you think about how businesses use payment methods, they have revolving lines of credit when they want to make a bigger purchase or they have seasonal peaks and they have to go to their banks or when they have to get rewards 
right? They'll use it for smaller purchases, you know, pay off their balances within 30 days or so. So you, you need to have to make that choice. Like this is the product that actually brings both of them together because what we've been able to do here is on a transaction by transaction basis, when you have that need that comes about because you've had a seasonal peak, you can choose cash flow, right? Choose they, cash flow. That sounds like, um, did anybody see the movie Train Spotting? <laughs> uh, I haven't, but happy to go back and... Uh, There's a great scene I need to tell you about later. You're not going to believe it. Let's, let's, let's not talk about transporting on stage. Um, so that, that's fascinating to me as well, because did you have that choice and that flexibility? Do you also um, provide, do you sort of suggest which might be better? Because you were just saying, like, understanding that a small business is, is seasonal. Like, seasonality is a big thing for a small business. You might make all your money in three months of the year. So um, is there, do you already, or are there plans to kind of build out some other tools here to help people pick which is the best option for them? So what, we, what we're always looking at is to make sure that we can um, put the choice in the hands of the business owner. And in fact, one of the ways that we can do that to give them more visibility so that they can make those better choices is we, uh, we deliver transaction level line item detail. Oh, now you see, as a fintech nerd, transaction level line item detail is what really gets me going. But, but no, but I, I'm being facetious, but explain why that's important. Because yes. like for, that's a real headache solver. Um, it is. So, so uh, you know, anyone that makes card purchases today, generally all what you are able to see is the merchant, the date, and the total amount of the, of the transaction. But you can't see what somebody actually bought. But so with this product, you can. You can click into um, oh. into all of the data for that purchase. You can understand the the, co- the units that you purchased, the unit cost per purchase, um, everything that you that you bought in that one. Yeah. So, adding to what Courtney said, so for those transactions that happen on Amazon Business, we are going to pass along with the card uh, statement data all these line item details, which could be you know you bought. 20 bottles, each bottle was two dollars, mm-hmm. right? And then there are like about 50 plus fields that you can use to be able to like reconcile within your own accounting systems without having the need to be able to like, you know, um, open, up your, uh, open up your credit card statement and be like, oh, I bought this for this trade event and I bought Again, this for this Again, as somebody who event. has been in a small business trying to deal with the taxes and trying to deal with reconciliation, does anybody love reconciliation? <laughs> Yeah, no, zero hands went up in the audience. Would anybody love reconciliation to go away? Show of hands. Yeah. Yeah, that's about half the audience. The other half, what's wrong with you? (laughs) It is day three. (laughs) 20, 20. I'm curious for the audience real quick. How many of you think that the small business market, small to medium-sized business market in the U.S. when it comes to fintech has kind of been ignored? That's hands. You can also do cheers. We'll take cheers as yeah, well. We'll it comes cheers. across better on a podcast. Other than me yeah. trying to count you. Day three, money, 2020. <laughs> I, I think that's the one thing I do think that's interesting. We're talking about SMB banking and Amex. The one thing you are known for, among many things, is that concierge level service. So seeing that, you're welcome, by the way. It was in my notes there. But, but you are. I mean, it's that idea of providing that great level of customer service for those and to bring that into the, the SMB market, I think it's fantastic. We've been serving small businesses for over 50 years. Um, we launched Small Business Saturday many years ago. And uh, what, you know, we are obsessed with promoting um, entrepreneurship and abilities uh, you know, to seize new opportunities for, uh, for entrepreneurs. So it's in our DNA, it's in our blood. And so um, when we're looking uh, at creating a really revolutionary um, sort of new product, the small business owners market, you know, there's so many um, there's so many advantages we can bring bring the edge of big businesses down to the small business. That's what we're we're trying to do with our tie up here with Amazon. Um, great. So I mean, thank you so much for for explaining so much of us. Um, you're going to stay here, and then we're going to move on to the second story. And then feel free to like chip in here. Cross-examine people. Uh, I, want, I, want, yeah. I want some love in here. So, love fight. You can do all of it. No, no fighting. No fighting. No fighting. <laughs> There's security. Have you seen them? Yeah. Um, so the next story um, is that WorldPay have made the announcement around faster payments. So Verifone and WorldPay have introduced EMV-grade contactless solution at Jimmy John's. Now I had to look this up. Jimmy John's is a bit like Subway, apparently. 
Um, and it's famous in Seattle. It's famous in Seattle. We, um, we eat Jimmy John's. <laughs> it's all you eat. Like Amazonians love Jimmy John's. <laughs> and that sounded like a plot. Somebody tweet that, please. Um, so the idea basically is that WorldPay has a really, really fast and secure processing service, um, which has been combined with one of Verifone's new devices, one of their payment acceptance terminals. Um, and the idea is that basically payments get easier. They're more convenient. Um, and there are more, pay, uh, more flexible payment options because people want options these days. Um, Jimmy John's is apparently the guinea pig, so um, we'll, we'll see what, what happens next. Um, but do you want to give us a little bit more detail on this, Mark? Yeah, I, I think that was a great, simple explanation. I think, you know, WorldPay, many of you may not be familiar with WorldPay, but as compared to Amazon and, and American Express, we're actually behind the scenes processing a lot of those transactions and taking complexity out of the environment. So... You know, our, our, our role there is partnering with um, providers and solutions, including merchants, Jimmy John's being a merchant, in terms of how do you reduce friction at the point of sale? How do you make it simpler to transact? So I think what you see today is a lot more partnering in terms of increasing acceptance. So driving acceptance, continuing to grow this great biggest ecosystem that we all participate in, as well as making it simpler for the consumer to transact. So taking I, I, friction out of the transaction. I think that taking friction out of transactions, we've heard so much about it, but it feels like the rubber's hitting the road with that now. Speed at checkout is everything to the merchant. Speed in transactions, removing friction is table stakes. And it's, it's interesting now that this is seen as something that the merchants are rolling out as something that's core to their business. Cards and payments used to feel like, oh, it's this thing that we kind of have to do rather than this thing that can really unlock more transactions and actually enhance the consumer experience. We, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago called Reinventing Retail. Uh, it was about a partnership between Klarna and H&M. And that partnership was as much about the loyalty and the reactivation and thinking about the entire journey. And, and you guys are starting to move there as well. You're, you're thinking about the merchant's life cycle, not just at the moment of the payment, but after it and before yeah. it and all of that. E enabling it for the merchant, right? Making commerce easy. Mm -hmm. I, I missed the tail end of the last section, but one of the examples was in the race, uh, a person walking around and trying to move by check and cash, <laughs> right? I missed the whole story, but it became impossible to kind of move around the country. How do you get a check cash today? How do you get cash? Um, and so everybody's moving to electronic, be it card or other forms of, of payment. How do, you, how do you reduce friction at the point of sale? That's and there really are places cool. in the UK now where they actually don't accept cash anymore. It's only cards. And, and I think that's coming. I think it's becoming normal. And as somebody who's extremely lazy and hates cash, I'm all for that. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because this is the US. How many of you use con contactless today? By raising hands. I'm sorry. By making noise in the audience because it's a podcast. How many have actually used contactless today? You still raise your hand. Uh, Why are you raising you raise your hand? Noise at the same time. So it's about 25% right. of the audience have used contactless. That's amazing. 75% are either really shy or haven't used contactless on a regular basis. And yet, that's normal, surely. That's the challenge for you, the, though, the, isn't the, it? The question is actually slightly different. The question is, does the customer feel that there is friction in a certain process or not, right? So, for example, like... 10 years ago, people used to say cards won't exist, right? But pulling a card out and just swiping that transaction or just pulling that, you know, it's still it a very... Works. It kind it, 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 It's still something that from a customer standpoint, it is not disrupting their experience too much, right? I, of course, you know, you can always get to the point where I can telepathically think and, you know, uh, and, and that's uh, where anybody we else should be getting there. telepathic payments? Right. <laughs> I love telepathic no, payments. Who wouldn't love telepathic payments? The point is, like, when you're trying to purchase something, does it actually create that tension where you have to walk away? So maybe that this is, is the just point. me, but, like, whenever I have to swipe and then I have to sign, I'm like, why have I got paper and a pen and now I have to keep this paper? Yeah, but like, why doesn't it reconcile immediately? And like, this, is, this, is where, this is where, you know, I would say American Express just came up with this solution wherein you do not need oh, to oh, sign. Oh, there's a little plug there. I respect just, that. Just, just, <laughs> just the, you do not have to sign anymore, right? Yes, so sign is going away. Now, you're basically saying if you really, if your whole challenge uh, was about signing, well... You know what? That's going away. That's easy. So, you know, you know the, the point I'm trying to say here is, like, when you have friction, the friction is supposed to be where you feel like I had to do something so bad that I, that I had to walk away. Yeah. Mm. If you basically are used to it, right, and it's like quick, sometimes 
it's a good thing and I, and i would tell you that within business payments some bit of friction is actually good friction because it gives you control so you have to be able to like differentiate there's that there's definitely good friction some of the challenger banks in the uk have uh, introduced uh, an ability for people to have a cool down period after they've done gambling which we're here in vegas right and if you're having a bad time with gambling you could turn off gambling transactions and then there was 48 hours before they were re-enabled that's good friction there are yeah. definitely friction that's in the interest of the consumer I, I, i'm not advocating friction but i'm saying that you know there's always good friction and then there is something that actually really moves the needle. That's Completely. the question. I'll tell you the one thing that strikes me most about this story, and if you're in America, you understand this. I'm so sorry. You're not going to get this. Is the fact that you picked Jimmy John's, <laughs> of all people, to trial this on. For, for those of us, those of you in the international audience that don't get this, if you listen to a Jimmy John's commercial, it's literally, what going to be Jimmy John's? We're going to get this on this frequency fast. That's can what you, you want. Can you explain why you chose that? Merch? Yeah, I, 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 w- I would say the merchant chose it, right? So yep. it was really important to the merchant. If you think about what's going on in the restaurant industry today, there's a lot going on in terms of all the different options. How do you transact? And so how do you simplify it? it? It was really driven by the relationship we have with the merchant. The merchant's saying, hey, I want to make my customer experience a good experience. So contactless or simple, how do you take friction out? Um, I, I think it's all about adoption. Right as yeah. the consumer starts to experience it, you do it once or twice. You start to learn about the technology. It's enabled more broadly across the ecosystem. You go to one location. You could use your, you know, tap and go. You go to the second location. You have to swipe. It's not so easy. The yeah. more the more options that are out there for contactless the more you're, you're going to see consumers adopt. And I think what you've all described in, in one way or another is that with payments, we see incremental change. So you can't go out there and tell everybody you don't need to sign anymore or you can't tell everybody that you have to tap straight away because they're not going to want that. It's going to take time to get used to it, especially when it's your money and you want it to be safe. Um, so I think, I think that's kind of the, the takeaway here is that you have, to, you have to do it slowly sometimes. Behavior change is slow, but we did see a story a couple of weeks ago where in the UK, contactless payments are now more than 50% of all retail payments in consumer, so it can be done. <laughs> but uh, the reason why contactless took off in the UK is because, you know, uh, because of that uh, card, the subway or the train card was kind of like becoming contactless, and that's what kind of like changed behavior. It's like what we'd call in Seattle Orca cards. Yeah, right? the mass transit. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the, it's, it's almost like, you know, you have to be as akin to doing something and then something else can... Habitually. 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 Yeah. Habitually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, that's the, and that's the key. And, and you, you already, you know, actually noted that when we were going through this. The, at the end of the day, Mark, it's will the consumer adopt it? And that's going to be the proof in the pudding. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. So that wraps up part one. I'd like everybody, please, to give a hand to our guest, Courtney, Mark, and Samant. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Before we bring on our next guest, we just want to tell you a little bit about us. And you guys don't have to leave just because your guys left. It's just <laughs> the whole Amex crowd just went. <laughs> Boo, Amic. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we're 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy, both in the UK and the US. And this show's actually been recorded for our podcast, Fintech Insider. So if you want to hear this show, subscribe now on iTunes. Find, look for Fintech Insider, and you'll hear yourself, and you'll hear that moment all back again. Um, and you can come see us in Booth, uh, stand 2005 in the Expo Hall. Just walk in and turn right. Come hang out with us. Um, Bianca, where are you? Can everybody see Bianca? That's Bianca over there. And if you want a T-shirt, Bianca has a whole table of T-shirts. So get yourself some free swag as well. <laughs> Who wants T-shirts? All right. And yeah, there yeah, we go. Now, what are you okay for? Like T-shirts you're excited about. Yep. My favorite part about the T-shirts, by the way, is we have a whole stack of mediums. And they haven't gone yet, so... Yeah. Anybody uh, who nope. feels medium-sized, you're you good. You can <laughs> go home with a lot of medium T-shirts. All right. For the next news bit, um, for this part... For next news story, we want to bring on Shannon Johnson, who's the group president of Cardalytics and a veteran of the show. Welcome, Shannon. And, and Shannon, very excited for you to have here. I'm very excited to, to introduce the CEO of Credit Karma, Ken Lin. Ken, thank you. Ken Lin, who's literally just sprinted from one stage to another. You must be one of the fittest men at this conference at this point. <laughs> literally, I think you were on the avant-garde stage, which is like back there somewhere. And uh, again, Credit Karma, I think I've been a customer now for years. I absolutely love it. I think it's, if you talk about a company that is really, I want to say, force change to some point in the industry, Credit Karma is definitely one that we love. So let's talk a little bit about the news story that you just broke. I love that it was in the Wall Street Journal. And it's basically that the lenders share their underwriting secrets with credit 
Karma, congratulations. Ken for that. So Credit Karma CEO Ken, and I love that because you're sitting right there, he believes that within just a few years, computers will optimize and execute multiple financial decisions for us. And you have a major announcement that's tied to that. Why don't you go ahead and fill us in? Yeah, so, you know, we, we a lot of times think about the size of conferences like this, fintech in general. And we think a lot about solving consumer problems. And we think a lot of those consumer problems are still not being addressed. So a lot of those problems are really around, hey, what products do I qualify for? And actually, how do I compare products? And maybe even how do you make the process so simple that I'm willing to refinance my loan? We were just talking about this backstage. Um, because refinancing is so challenging that I won't do it to save the money, even though I know it's better for me. And I think when you start solving those structural things, people will start having $4 in saving, or $400 in a savings account, right? People will be more financially fit. And we fundamentally think that's important. And as Credit Karma, we think about championing that progress, that change, and leveraging our user base to help the banks get there. We were talking a moment ago about reducing friction. And there's something really nice about reducing friction, but not, to, not so that somebody buys more stuff, but so that somebody actually improves their own financial position and improves their own lives and gets to a point where they have savings. I think that's really an interesting perspective, especially where, uh, you know, kind of that, uh, business process has been the same and never really challenged and people just kind of shrugged their shoulders and went well yeah we know it sucks but that's the way it is to really rethink that and use data to do it i think is kind of powerful and you can partner with others so people can take advantage of that as well yeah that's right i mean i think one of the challenges in the space is banks become so big that you you know you have to have a lot of data you have to have a lot of scale to enforce this like hey let's make it so applications are easy let's make it so that people know what products are qualified for let's make it easy so people can compare rates i think you have to get to some tens of millions of users and then I think you know, people start changing because it makes a difference to their bottom line. And I think it used to be the case that credit underwriting was like the closely guarded secret. It was locked behind the doors somewhere and nobody talked about it. But now actually kind of pooling this becomes something that they, and creating a marketplace around it is really powerful because they're actually able to lend more products and they're getting lower default rates, I would imagine. I, I think that's right. And I think people still do hold it very closely. I don't think anyone wants to share their credit underwriting models with anyone else. But you can do it in such a way where it still can be IP, but consumer friendly. I mean, I think one sure. of the most frustrating things as a consumer is, you know, credit decisions probably were, you know, 30 years ago based on a credit score, maybe one or two attributes, maybe your income. Today, as big data comes into play, you know, credit decisions are probably dozens, maybe hundreds of attributes. And as a consumer, as it's become more complex, you have less and less understanding of how it works. And I think something, somebody, some technology has to change that. Otherwise, you go around saying, I don't know if I qualify. Yeah. And so you don't apply for the product. Not, again, not to consume more, but so you can find a better product. And I think that is what's really important. I think no. that genuinely in the consumer's interest stuff is, is, is critical. And Shannon, you kind of work a lot with data at Cardlytics. What are, you, are you seeing this as being a bigger trend of people using data in the interests of consumers, not just their own? Very much so. Um, we at Cardlytics use the consumers' transaction data through their banks, and based on how they transact, we can offer up ads to them based on merchants that are relevant to them. So just like Ken is offering up you know, products that are relevant, credit products that are relevant to them based on where their credit score may fall or income and their other attributes and more importantly what they're looking for in a credit card, we can do the same in terms of offers that save them real money on their everyday purchases and most importantly we make it a very streamlined experience for them. Can, can I ask a question? Um, how do you make sure you're not offering up, how do you make sure you're offering suitable products, right? So some of the problems sometimes, particularly when you look at credit, can be somebody is, is recommended a product that might not actually be right for them. So do you, do you vet the products that come in to come, come through the marketplace? Do you, you know, choose them based on, and, and what's, the, what's the criteria, basically? Yeah. So one, we absolutely do that. We do not work with predatory lenders, so we vet every single uh, one of the providers on our platform. If you have uh, an action with a regulatory body, for example, we will kick you off. So that's number one. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number two, we firmly believe in the notion of this idea of wisdom of the crowds, right? So reviews make a big part of helping consumers choose. So it's the same way that, you know, when I look for a pair of AirBuds on, um, on Amazon, I look at the reviews. I think that very much goes into it. And I think the last case, and really to the point around underwriting in our marketplace, is because you actually are now certain of the products by which you qualify for, you're not reading about some aspirational product 
you know, or some, you know, sort of some subprime product that is not great for you. You really tailor that experience to that consumer's credit worthiness. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, one of the things you had mentioned earlier I thought was interesting, Ken, when you talked about banks and scale. You have scale. How many customers do you have in the U.S. and Canada, uh, roughly? Yeah, we have a little more than 80-some-odd million now. 80-some-odd million. Yeah, I'm not, not sure, sure what I'm supposed to say from a PR perspective. Yeah, it's so. too bad that you're a startup struggling. That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> you want to say something, Chad? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been in banking for, I was, I work for a tech company now, but I was a banker for 15 years. And even though the application process has changed significantly from back in the day, paper apps to digital apps, the feeling of the turndown has not changed. I mean, that is so difficult, especially when you're hearing it from your bank where you have maybe your checkings account, your savings account. And what do you mean I was turned down when I applied I'll for your credit it, you'll card? You'll take my money, but you won't give me any. Right, exactly. And <laughs> so you. I think that's really what is so provocative about the marketplace is, you know, customers are giving permission to use the data that they have have given to Credit Karma to give informed recommendations and the chances that they get approved are very high, right? 90 yeah. plus percent. So it takes away that uncertainty and most importantly, the disappointment of the turndown. So from, from one story that is talking about excellent use of data, I'm going to try and make a link and I don't think I can, um, to another. Um, so the next story is that Fin AI has raised $11 million in a Series A financing. So um, FinAI is um, basically it provides AI-powered virtual assistance for finance, for financial companies. Um, the new funding is going to be used to support the growth momentum underway at FinAI across North America and Europe. Um, the financing will allow FinAI to, and this is, this is real press speak here, but we'll take it apart in a minute, to enhance enterprise tooling and extend its core product to support additional banking and personal finance capabilities. Um, what? Particularly, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll pull that apart. Um, but I just wanted to mention what's particularly interesting to me um, is the participation of BDC Capital's $200 million Women in Technology Fund in this round. Um, so it, it, it's one of the, the increasingly uh, needed and increasingly growing number of female-led initiatives within technology. The WIT Fund is one of the world's largest venture capital funds dedicated to investing in women led by technology companies. Yeah, I, say, I say the other part of the story I like, and I, and, and I agree with that part of it. The other part is, all right, for a free t-shirt in the audience, where's FinAI based out of? What's it? That's not fair because you're, <laughs> you're from Canadian. Canada. <laughs> Christy right, Duncan, stop it. Anyway. You get a t-shirt. You get a medium. We got a whole crapload over there. Um, what I was going to say was, Shannon, I'm sure you agree with me that the, you know, as, as women in technology companies, that the more support is given to those companies that are founded by and run by women, the better. Absolutely. And I'm proudly part of a company where Lynn Lobby, who is the CEO of Cardlytics, is one of the founders. Um, our other claim to fame women founder in Atlanta is Catherine Petralia at Cabbage. And, you know, I think it really speaks to the success that women can have um, in, this, in this fintech space. However, the investments are disproportionately skewed the other way. So according to Fortune last year, $84 billion in venture capital was awarded to startups, only 2.7% of those had women executives. Wow. And, and when the Kauffman Foundation and others have looked at results, they have seen in some cases 20% um, you know, above in terms of performance of, of male-founded companies with 50% less in expenses. So they're run efficiently, um, you know, great performance. So there's, you know, I think that's something for us all to think about why, what's the cause of that. Yeah, and I mean, I mean the, more, the more companies do raise like this and awareness grows, that, that will hopefully help, but it seems like we've still got quite a long way to go on that. Mm -hmm. uh, just at the risk of being silly after a very uh, important point, I do love that they raised 11 million as a founder of 11FS. <laughs> I think that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So, Did anybody so, not see that coming? So I, I, I worked <laughs> with the producer on putting this story together, and she was like, it's $14 million. And I was like, those are Canadian dollars. Let's make it US dollars, <laughs> and we get 11. <laughs> um, I, do, I do also like, though, that this is Vancouver. For those of you that aren't familiar with Canada, um, there's really two I, I have heard of Canada. I think it's a real place. I'm very familiar. <laughs> okay, let me, let me clarify. For the fintech scene in Canada, there's really two hotspots. There's Vancouver and Toronto. And ask Kirsty Duncan, who answered the question before, there's a rivalry. And, and the reality is Toronto is an AI hotspot, period, globally. It's but one of the biggest sorry? hubs. Oh. <laughs> I said, who's more sorry? Oh, God, stop it. <laughs> Well, I made Bob on. laugh, right? <laughs> <laughs> so to bring, the, to bring the story back around, talking about the Canada investing so much in AI, this particular use of AI is, is, is almost quite close to, I guess, kind of a chatbot, right? 
So what do we think about chatbots generally? Chatbots in finance. So we pro, pro, pro chatbots. I like how we're all Who looking at chatbots in finance. Show yeah. hands. <laughs> hey Ken. Three people. Four. Howard Bush. <laughs> Six. Okay, two at the back. Uh, Ken, did you want to? Did you well, want to? I mean, I think I think chatbots as a form of communication from mobile makes a ton of sense. We're yeah. used to dialoguing that way. I think that's great for chatbots. Um, but I think that AI requires a number of of different. I would say infrastructure pieces to make work. One is massive amounts of data. I think it's really hard to tailor the experience for people in this room without millions, if not billions of data points. And I think that's challenge number one. <coughs> I think challenge number two is going to be very much around trust, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if we, we as people trust a computer with our money yet. Now we should, because I oftentimes talk about the fact that finance is just math and computers <laughs> are really good at math, right? So I think if you can get the trust and the data, then you can have something. But I think those are the two prerequisites to making AI well, and work. And in a post-Cambridge Analytica world, that trust is more important than ever. And there's an example of an organization that had massive amounts of data. And I often talk about it's not just the size of the data, it's the quality. Like, if I've got a load of data that I can't access for 30 days, and when I do, it has almost no meaning to me, um, then, then it's, you know, shitty data is why we can't have nice things. Like, you've got to have high-quality data as well. That's a new t-shirt for everybody. Shitty data <laughs> is why we can't have nice things. Day three, money 2020. Uh. See that as part of it. Okay, well, um, thank you so much for joining us. That wraps up part two. Um, thank you so much to our guests. Thank you for running for us, Ken. We really appreciate it. Um, so we're going to give them a big round of applause as they head off. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. All right, and our next guest for the next segment, we have from JP Morgan Chase, there's no way I'm going to say his name right, Matt Luce. Did I get yeah, that right? That good. is a first <laughs> that never happens. Hey, welcome to the stage, Which means that from our next guest from BBVA, there's no way I'm getting your name right, Ian Omarad. Yeah. Close? Close. All right. Ian is incredibly forgiving. So All right. I used to work with Ian back in our Barclays days. <laughs> Some of the interesting pronunciations of Ian's name. Are... Yeah, we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to jump straight into the story. Um, so the story is a J.P. Morgan story. Um, and it is that J.P. Morgan's interbank information network has expanded to more than 75 banks. Um, so this means that more than, more than a number of banks have signed up to be part of IIN. Is it IIN? Or? It is. We, IIN? we call it IN. IN. Right? <laughs> you're not cool unless you're IN. in. I like oh, it. Yes. I like it. Um, so that's the largest number of banks to join a live application of blockchain technology. Uh, it launched last year as a pilot. Um, the idea is to minimize friction in global payments processes. Um, but actually, what I'm going to do is let you explain this, because uh, blockchain is not my jam, and I'm okay. sure it's yours. <laughs> yeah, so we looked as one of the largest correspondent banks in the world. <clears throat> we focused on what the friction points were in cross-border transactions and very quickly realized that distributed ledger blockchain maybe could help us very quickly solve some of those issues. And really, it's when a payment goes non-straight through, it can take days to clear out whatever the issue may be. And we focused early on on sanctioned hits. And if you're not familiar, if anybody has the unfortunate 
coincidence of having a name that matches a name on a sanctions list, try getting a transaction cross-border into your account. It can take days to clear out. So we focused on the sharing of data across the network, leveraging a blockchain. But I think it's important to understand, right, distributed ledger for us is very important in what we think we can do with this in the future, but it leverages API, cloud technology as well, right? To that's, me, that's, that's the combo of those three that's the power. That's the really important point. People talk about blockchain for blockchain's sake as if it's some panacea that solves all the world's ills. And I kind of wish it was, um, but it's not, right? It is it, not. It's really not. And so you kind of need the rest of the technology stack to make sense and to focus on solving a real problem. How about that? Uh, and it's interesting to me, though, this comes in a time at which Swift have announced a GPI initiative. Yeah. Um, so could you, like, how's this different to Swift GPI and what is Swift GPI? Yeah, so we think it works in real conjunction with Swift GPI. We've been founding members of GPI from the beginning. GPI is all about transparency in the cross-border transactions. The other issue we had is it was kind of fire and forget. So you do a cross-border transaction, assuming nobody reaches back to you, you assume the money got there, but you <laughs> never had confirmation. Dangerous and assumption to make. Very dangerous <laughs> assumption yeah, to make. I mean, you know, you wouldn't really do that with cash. I'm just going to throw the cash at this person and then close exactly. my eyes and the best. Uh, the good news was for a long time, you didn't have any other options, so it was all you could do. So GPI really focused on transparency in where the transaction was, but it wasn't solving the friction point, right? So yeah. if you still had an issue, okay, maybe now you know it's stuck at bank X, but it wasn't going to solve getting that transaction through Bank X. You couldn't get it unstuck. Correct. You, knew you just knew now exactly where it was. And so we feel they, they really work together in conjunction. And they're both early stages. They're not meant to be that's all they're going to build, right? Swift wants to do more fraud stops and other things once you have unique reference, which GPI kind of encourages. And then we want to do a lot more with our network as well. What struck me about this is like 75 banks came out alongside you guys. With that, like, How did you corral 75 banks to do the same anything? <laughs> We're over 100 right now. All righty. Yeah, so that's the new news. <laughs> Show off. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to be honest. I think it was two things. We have 3,500 correspondent banking relationships. We are one of the largest, if not the largest. You got all the banks. You got all the banks. We've got the relationships. And then you combine it with distributed ledger, blockchain. Reality is everybody wants to do something. And we had a real live use case that we could stand up relatively quickly, right? That everybody got excited about. So when you start combining those factors, before you know it, I will, you know, my, the rest of the teams at Cybos, which is in Australia this week, I'm predicting we'll have another 100 banks within the next few weeks Both. signed up as well. But that wow. speaks to how okay. big the problem is, right? It's yeah. like international payments, the bulk of the cost is dealing with the risk side of it. And the only choice you had really before was to go meet the correspondent bank and watch them do their processes, which meant flying out a risk team to another country to watch them do what they do. That's not a real way to solve a problem, surely. No, and the beauty is technology allows us to solve that problem in so many different ways now. But really, for us, it's you've got to build a network, right? Swift has one network, which helps with some of the transactions and the sharing of information. And we think this is the, the other network that can do the same for other purposes. So you're in, right? BBVN's yeah, we're in. one of the 75. And I, 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 <laughs> we hope so, because um, it's like saying 100, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I should take the opposite view, shouldn't I? And say, no, we're never. <laughs> no, just, no, um, but, uh, no, we're one of the 70. It's, it's, a, it's a great use case. And I think that's the underlying, you know, it is a problem that has been there for donkey's years and, and has never really improved. And as soon as there's additional information required, finding out where that is, where it's stuck, how long it's going to take, is a nightmare. Can I just say, I've not heard donkey's years used on a podcast before. <laughs> nice. For those that don't know, that's a lot it's of years. the British thing. <laughs> why, why Ethereum? That's the base technology, right? Yeah, so we, we started our blockchain discovery probably over three years ago. We looked at that time at all the different blockchain technologies that existed in an open source way. We landed on Ethereum for a bunch of reasons. One was the scalability. We saw it as the opportunity to scale it up relatively quickly where some of the others were challenged to. Obviously, the smart contract capability that kind of came embedded in the Ethereum code. And then for the first for us, almost two years ago now, we actually took it, created our own version of it called Quorum and open source right that almost two years ago now, which for a bank, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. You, if, you said, if you said exactly 15 years ago, we're going to share our technology, right? That's something probably 
I would have been unheard of, but now a, it's it's really a at the bank forefront. open sourced a thing. Like yeah. that was unheard of. Banks were big consumers of open source tech, but they typically didn't like put it out there back into the rest of the world, and that's kind of interesting to see. Um, but speaking of banks doing interesting things with tech, Ian, you're sitting right here, and you guys did a thing recently as well. Um, so you launched your open banking platform in the U.S. So that was your banking as a service platform using APIs to let firms offer their customers financial products without having to take on uh, full banking themselves or for f- uh, fueling, fulling? What does <laughs> that say, banking. Laura? Fulling banking? Anyway, um, while PSD2 is driving open banking in Europe, you guys are taking this proactive approach in the US, which is, which is kind of interesting. Whilst you're in beta for six months, allowing third parties to uh, pass, that pass securities and compliance checks uh, to access the APIs, I think what's interesting to me is this is open banking coming to the U.S. Why did you guys do it, and, and what are you hoping to achieve? I think, I think for us, it's, it's an essential part of the future. If, if you look at where banking is going, it's, it's, in, it's, it's embedding the right solution at the right time in the customer journey. Um, and for banks to be meaningful moving forward, we've got to have instant banking, banking available through APIs. Um, and APIs that are consumable by clients, not us just surfacing our stack. Yeah, because well, um, there is a difference between doing an API and doing it well. Like, exactly. it's not what you do, it's the way you do it kind of stuff. And, like, there's a whole bunch of crappy APIs out there um, that nobody uses. And it's like, yeah. yay, we did an API. And it's like, yeah, nobody cares. Doing it well is the important thing. And, and it's not easy. You know, we've learned an awful lot in the last three years. In fact, one of our, our first clients, OneSky, is, is with us in the audience here. And we, the, the, the trick is you've got to build those capabilities based on use cases and really understand what is the problem you're trying to solve, how fast does it need to be solved, in what way, and where is it built into the user journey. Um, and that then affects how you build that API and how it's consumed. So what are some of those journeys or services that you're exposing? What's an example? So, so we've got a total of 57 APIs. Um, they combine for four core use cases. So there's ID and V, clearly an essential for, for most. ID and verification. Sorry. I said no acronyms before we started. Um, <laughs> account opening, as you'd expect. Payments, probably the biggest. Um, and, and lastly, card issuance, because there's a lot of um, partners that are, are probably going to be looking at that as a real tool for their for their clients. Um, there are clearly many other use cases we'd like to build, but we felt those were um, the most straightforward and easily consumable, the easiest to learn from. We can get scale and then develop more sophisticated cases. Identity by itself. I don't know about you, but I can't move in the expo hall for some other identity startup trying to solve <laughs> that problem. It's a huge pain point. Just it onboarding is. somebody to a bank account and following all of the compliance rules is really hard. So having somebody that can just verify an identity through a simple API call is huge. Yeah, and I think the next chapter you'll see with us certainly is we have some amazing services, services we have, we've pushed through from Compass, uh, the bank in the US. Um, there are other areas where there are some great startups and fintechs developing some interesting things. Um, and we'll be partnering with them and using and exposing their APIs through our product platform so that clients can pick the best for what they need. And then it becomes um, a true marketplace at that exactly point. Right. Like if you're not just offering your own crap, um, there's somebody else's stuff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> crap? <laughs> well, your own amazing Perfected stuff. Perfected APIs. Yeah. <laughs> you were looking for. So one, one question I had, we had a debate up here yesterday that um, unfortunately Europe won on digital banking. Of but course Europe won. It, was, it, it wasn't a fair fight though, was no, it? No, it, it, it really wasn't. Um, but one of the questions I always have is just taking something that works in one geo and lifting it and say it's going to work here. What do you think is going to be different between Europe and the U.S. when it comes to this? There's always something. We're, we're rather odd to be. Yeah, you over. are. Yeah. I mean, that, was, that was not I'm generally my speaking. <laughs> we're rather odd. I, 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 you know what? I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think there will be differences. Yeah. Um, but I think for some of the core base use cases, whether it's identification, whether it's account opening, a payment, those standard things, we need to get close to one API consumable globally. Yeah. So I, I don't think those things will, will be different geographically. I do think um, that some of the more subtle use cases um, will require 
personalization at a local level. And that, for me, is where fintechs can really help us do that fast and efficiently, and where the bank isn't necessarily the best provider of that service. Um, so what we'll look to do is build global singular APIs wherever we can and supplement that with amazing partnerships that can deliver personalization as well. APIs as a business model are huge. I think Stripe got valued at over 20 billion US dollars in their yeah. in their last round. I mean, this is something whose time has come. And it's really interesting to watch um, sort of an incumbent bank really grasp this nettle. It feels to me as an observer that like a lot of European banks and UK banks have sort of done it because they had to. This is a really interesting, we're doing it and we're going to try and do it as well as possible. But you guys are in this interesting position. There are fintech startups doing APIs. There's big tech out there looming on the horizon. You know, how do you position yourself against big tech and the startups? Why would your APIs stand out? I think it's the underlying expertise. You know, we're a bank and, and what we're offering is banking as a service. Mm -hmm. um, the, the technology element, um, clearly it has to be developed around the user and very consumable, but it's not massively difficult. Um, it's not really, you know, it's the underlying surfaces, services that are so key, yeah. and that's where our expertise lies. Um, you know, but, but we can learn a lot through partnerships as well. And, and I think that's the other thing that, from a mindset perspective, banking more broadly has to change. So you don't have to have everything inside your firewalls and, you know, and, and inside your own organization. It's leaning into pockets of expertise and giving it the freedom to do what it can do. Yeah, and I think we're really early. We're late to the game, obviously, as an industry to APIs, but we're going to fast forward that and catch up very quickly because of that, because it's even internally, right, the technology provides a lot of power to share and talk to systems in a more efficient way. And so I see the industry, right, a year from now, two years, everything, it's all going to be about APIs, but I wonder how much it's like the internal systems that can't do that for some other organizations. I know um, uh, JP Morgan, uh, JB Diamond's been out there talking about fintech being you know, really key for a couple of years. And, and of course, at BBVA, um, uh, Francisco Gonzalez has been talking about tech being crucial to everything you do for at least a decade, if not more. Yeah. And actually then having the internal systems that can keep up with real time that are able to do it. I think because there's a lot of organizations that are going to grasp with, can we even do this? And if we do, are we exposing ourselves to more risk? So it's not as easy as just having an API. It's also, are you, is your digital service underneath that able to keep up with that demand? Yeah, but I'll yeah. say one thing, and this came across in the debate yesterday. And, and, and again, we have Chase sitting up here. We got BBVA. Speaking for Chase, right? Once, once you kind of get the power of the bank behind an effort, it really does move fast over here. Right. I mean, you, and when it does come to U.S. banks, yeah. once that, the, you know, the big five... I mean, if you think there, about even, right, I don't know how many years ago now, we were the first ones to have you take a picture of the check and it gets deposited. Yeah. Now, I think everybody has yeah. that same technology. Yeah. Unfortunately, it reinforced the use of check in some way, so it <laughs> yeah. wasn't all good. But yeah. No, I mean, bad example, and that's not where I wanted you to go whatsoever for this, because I'm incredibly bitter over yesterday, so thank you for right. helping. There. I'm going to move this on before Sam keeps Just, just one point Sorry. on that that I think is slightly different. In the, I think with banking as a service, being a scale player as a traditional bank doesn't necessarily matter. Wow. What, what matters more is the consumability of your APIs. The yes. quality. And, and, and if you get that bit right, you're a you don't scale is coming from everybody else. Yep. Um, and, and if you can get people playing in your sandbox and experiencing that quality fast, for us it's somewhere between two and three minutes, that's where you get the confidence and people start to build product and proposition on top of yourself. Everything with APIs is your time to hello world, which Absolutely. is how quickly can you use the first API and bringing that time down and really measuring it, I think. Um, but don't tell uh, the New York Fed that you mentioned sandboxes. They won't like I uh, will just move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our final story today um, is an interesting one. It's a little bit lighthearted. Uh, it comes from Business Insider, and it is apparently the day in the life of a banking exec. From HSBC. Now, I am, I am not a banking exec, and I never have been, but I imagine a few of you are. So let me see, so see, see if this sounds like your typical day. So wake up at 5.30 and kick off a day with meditation. At 6.30, have a quick catch-up with friends and family. What does that even mean? Then, then you eat breakfast, and it's going to be fresh fruit or green juice at 7 a.m. At 7.30, quick game of tennis. Into the office for around 9. 10.30, you meet with some tech companies. 
lunch is about 12. At 1.30, so an hour and a half lunch break, she goes back to work. Sometimes she likes to grab a cup of coffee or tea from Starbucks. English breakfast tea is her favourite, though, as she is British. I will have one coffee in the morning and English breakfast tea for the rest of the day. Sound familiar? If I wasn't mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was supposed to be somebody who worked in San Francisco. Yes, in San Francisco. This is how I know this is absolutely bullshit. So she had her breakfast at 7 a.m., played tennis at 7.30, and got in the office at 9. Anybody done San Francisco traffic? Bullshit. 100% call that. She would have gotten to work at about 1 o'clock. Easily. <laughs> There's no way. What about you guys? Sound familiar? She, she, she lost me after wake up at 5.30. <laughs> that was the only thing we pretty much had in common. The rest of my day looks quite different than hers, but I give her all the credit if that's what she can do in her day. Yeah, I, must have... I haven't had an hour and a half lunch in 15 years, so... <laughs> I, wake, I wake up at about... 5.36-ish, but primarily because it takes me about two hours to get my socks on in the morning. <laughs> You're <laughs> so, not meditating. Uh, meditation's kind of out the window. Meditation is getting your socks on. What's the story really did go viral. <laughs> I mean, just uh, sheer... Didn't you used to work at Business Insider? Just what? Me, no, oh, no, no, on. I didn't right. work for that part of the business. No, I worked for the intelligence <laughs> side. This was never something we would do. What scares me is this isn't satire. Like, if this was satire, it would be a work of absolute genius. It would be, this would be like, this is Spinal Tap levels of satire. I thought it was brilliant when I read it. I thought it had to be an April Fool's. Yeah. <laughs> it's still running. It was out there today. I saw it. Right. So so if, if, if you want to go look for it, it's, it's, um, the pictures are especially... Oh, my God. The, the photographs of this woman's life look like somebody has curated an Instagram feed, but with a model using filters. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't look like anybody's real life ever, let alone somebody who's working in a bank for 12 I love the end of the story where her and her partner get together and discuss the oh, day yeah. and the trends, and you're like, what a know. load of... And tomorrow's challenges. Instagram, maybe. I thought, you know, <laughs> most people get up in the morning, look at their diary and panic, yeah. don't they? <laughs> 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 Meditation. No, before I panic, I'll meditate. Yeah, my diary looks like I'm losing at Tetris quite often. This is, this is, this is quite... Well, I, I have a six-month-old daughter, so that whole, whole day looks completely different in my world. It throws your tennis, right? Yeah, the yeah. tennis yeah. game's like, off. What were they trying to prove with this article? Because somebody in a PR team sanctioned this. Like, I don't know where Chris is, but I know that he wouldn't be down for that. Like, this is just... This is weird stuff. But What hey, was the bank again? Uh, HSBC. Okay, sorry, HSBC, if you're out here. All right, that wraps up this last segment. We want to thank Matt and Ian. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Give them a hand. Thanks very much. A lot of clapping for Ian. You go. You did a fantastic job, by the way, Matt. Um, And on that note, that concludes a very special edition of Fintech Insider Live from Money 20 Vegas. Thank you very much to all of our guests. Courtney, Tim, Matt, Mark, Shannon, Ken, Matt, and Ian. Special shout-out to Jimmy Johns. I seriously want (laughs) Jimmy Johns right now. We want to thank the team at Money 2020 for doing this and BBVA for sponsoring this incredible stage. Also, thanks to our media team. So, Michael, Simone, Laura, Bianca, Sarah, wherever you are, thank you guys. You have done a wonderful job. And to the audience, thank you for surviving day three. If you are here tomorrow, come please get a medium-sized T-shirt because we have too many. (laughs) You can find more about us on 11FS.com or check out Fintech Insider on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. Follow us on Money 2020 Livestream and come and see us at our stand at 205. We do have a lot of beer. For For some reason, they give us Bud Light. And Coors Light. So if you have no taste in beer, please come by. <laughs> I haven't figured out why that is. But you know what I figured out the best thing about the beer is? It's free. Yes, so. free Bud Light and a t-shirt and swag. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And thank you very much and have a great afternoon. <laughs>